and welcome to my podcast, The Big Schmear. I'm Beth Schenker, your host, and in today's episode, I'll continue my conversation with Emily Pastor, food preserver extraordinaire, and my guest in the previous episode. Here's a little background on Emily. She's the author of two cookbooks, Food Swap, Specialty Recipes for Bartering, Sharing, and Giving, and The Joys of Jewish Preserving. Emily is the writer and photographer behind the website West of the Loop, which has been called a family food blog to savor. As founder of the Chicago Food Swap, a community event where handmade foods are bartered and exchanged, Emily is the leader in the national food swap movement. She teaches and speaks on garden-to-table cooking, canning, and fermentation all around the country. Welcome back, Emily. Let's get right back into our conversation. Why don't we talk a little about some of your projects that are not directly connected to food preserving, like your food swap. Can you tell me a little bit about it? Yeah, so a food swap, it's, uh, it was kind of a new trend. Um, it started maybe now, maybe it's now six or seven years ago. But basically what I think of it as is this, there was this moment where, you know, everyone started canning and pickling and making their own kombucha and, and this, and then, um, charcuterie for those of us who (laughs) eat that stuff. And, um, what happened was, I think is that everyone found sort of found themselves with too much of something. I certainly did with, with my preserving. And in Brooklyn, there was a movement among a couple of these sort of DIY types to get together and trade. Oh, I'll trade you, you know, my honey, or my backyard eggs for your marmalade or whatever it was. And it quickly, and this, these people were bloggers and it was the early days, you know, I think of a lot of the social media, but still very Mm -hmm. active on social media. And so the word spread really quickly to other cities with a outsized food culture, like Portland, Oregon, or Austin, or, you know, obviously California, the Bay area, um, places like that. And I read about a food swap in Philadelphia and I thought, Oh, I have, that's what I need because I was making all this jam and pickles and it was sitting in my basement because we're only four in my family. And I looked around to see if there was one here in Chicago and uh, there was not at the time. This is 2011, I want to say. So I started it. And yeah, we've been, the first time the Chicago Food Swap got together was December 2011 and we've been going strong ever since. So um, do you get together once a year and is it a physical get together or... Do you know each other and exchange food throughout the year or how does that work? So it is a, it's an in-person event, definitely. And that's, I think, a big part of it, which is really fun. It's one of those, it sort of starts, you know, it's organized online, but it's definitely in person. And food swaps can meet anywhere from, you know, every month to every few months or maybe four times a year. There was a time where we were doing it every month. Lately, it's been more like every few months, mostly because of me and being overwhelmed. But yeah, and so you get, you actually, you know, show up and it's, anyone can come. It's not a select group or a membership thing. You, I just ask that you sign up in advance. And so it's like a ticketed event, uh-huh. but one open to the public and people bring their items to swap. The only rules are it must be something you made or grew or foraged yourself. Uh That's rule number one. And rule number two is no money changes hands at all. So what I like to say is that your labor is sort of the currency at the food swap. 
if you grew those vegetables, if you those are eggs from your backyard chickens, or if it's something you made, be it a baked good, mm-hmm. soup, salads, dips, sauces, preserved goods, any of that is all very welcome. Wow. And so did your blog, um, the West Loop blog, did that start before the food swap? And tell me about that. Is it, or is it totally connected, the very same thing, or... No, there's, there are two separate things, but it's, you know, it all kind of starts to overlap. Uh Um, I had started blogging before the food swap and the blog, you know, it was all, it was all of a piece. I was, I was preserving a lot and doing a lot of sort of DIY kitchen stuff. And tell me what DIY is. Oh, do it yourself. Oh, right. Of course. Okay. (laughs) Thank you. Um, no, I'm sure people listening were thinking the same thing. And so I was sort of doing a lot of these sort of kitchen adventures and the blog became a way to document that and share it. And then because I was active on social media, I did have a bit of a following. I was able to start the food swap and, and spread the word that way. So it, it all very much interrelates, but it's sort of different parts of the, of the whole. And so if people wanted to find out, if they wanted to look at your blog, or if they wanted to find out about the food swap, how would they do that? Well, so my blog is, as you, I think, said in the beginning, it's uh, West of the Loop is the name of it. It's westoftheloop.com. Okay. And that's my little joke for our Chicago listeners. <laughs> <laughs> and, yeah, that's all original recipes, not all Jewish. A lot of it's Jewish. But mm-hmm. right now it's, you know, kind of that dead zone between we our, you know, spring Jewish holidays and our fall yep. Jewish holidays. So it's just, now it's just a lot of seasonal stuff. But definitely, when it gets to be holiday time, you'll find a lot of holiday recipes right there for you. And then in terms of the food swap, same thing. It's chicagofoodswap.com on the web, on Facebook is probably a great way to connect with that. And it would be wonderful to have new folks. We have a lot of regulars who come to the food swap, but there's always new people too. So the word's always getting out. And That's it great. Is, it is so much fun. And if somebody is hearing this and wants to start a food swap in their own neighborhood or city. Do you have any suggestions for them? Well, at the risk of sounding very self-promotional, my book Food Swap is very helpful for that. It's it's not only, it is a cookbook with a lot of recipes for things that would be great to bring to a food swap, but the whole first part of the book is advice on how to start a food swap, grow a food swap, different kinds of swaps one could do, like um, you can do holiday swaps or gardening swaps or soup swaps and but I, I'm always happy to talk to people as well. And, you know, the first thing you want to do is make sure there, see if there is one in your community. Google, right. you know, to see if there's one active in your community now um, and sort of hook up with them. But if not, I love it when people start new food swaps. It thrills me. That's very cool. I don't know if you, well, you kind of answered this, but not exactly. So when you first, very first started doing preserves, mm-hmm. did you have any, like, big challenges or... Any weird things happen or any amazing things happen? Was there something that went really right or went really wrong? Yes, I'm. Yes, <laughs> you know, it's it's just people find it really intimidating. Yeah, I I would agree with that. I've never <laughs> tried it because I feel like, oh, this is just like way off my radar screen. Yeah, and you know, I really so I teach a lot around Chicago. I teach at the Botanic Gardens. I teach at Morton Arboretum. I teach and I and I travel around the country and teach and my real goal is to dispel that myth and to say like, listen, you know, anyone can do this. Anyone, you know, if you understand some basic food safety in your own kitchen, you know, you touch raw chicken and then you wash your hands, you can handle this. Definitely. All right. All right. Definitely. <laughs> but you know, I, I think depending on how you learn, you know, take a class, 
find something online or read, you know, if you're that mm -hmm. person who can, who can pick up a really good canning cookbook and read the instructions. Um, I certainly go through all the sort of safety procedures in, in the Jewish preserving book. I was self-taught, you know, I sort of muddled through and this is like, you know, 2007 when it, there weren't quite as many resources as there are now, yeah. which is, which is great. The worst thing that ever happened to me is that a candy thermometer broke in a pot of jam. Okay, that's not good. No, and I remember having this crazy thought like, I can save it. Oh, <laughs> you know, no. I was like, not only is there broken glass in here, there's probably mercury. Right. So that was a lot of heartbreaking ingredients <sighs> out the... I now use a... I now use a... One of those sort of like probe thermometers that's like metal and oh. never going to break in anything. It's the best. <laughs> I really recommend those. But I think, you know, to me just... It is, it's one of those things that when you do it and you, you know, you make jam or you make pickles for the first time and then you have that experience of pulling out the jar a few months later or even a few weeks later, you feel like it's an amazing feeling. You feel like you're sort of, you know, Loring goes wilder and like <laughs> pioneer, like all in one. And you're like, I can't believe I did that. Yeah. It just seems like it would be, have, you'd have this amazing feeling and you like you took all this produce and you made it into something totally different it doesn't connect with anything it's not like putting the roast in the oven yeah. at all you're really changing the whole chemistry of the food that's of, very true yeah. so sounds very cool so we also talked about this is this is like the best time to be thinking about making preserves Definitely. or other kinds of things and so do you have some suggestions if someone's going to try this what kinds of things would you look for in the farmer's market or how would you look at ingredients differently knowing that that's what you were going to do with this, these strawberries or these peaches? Or is there something else you have to think about when you're purchasing uh, ingredients for preserves? Well, one thing I think is people are going to very quickly start to think about is the price tag because, you know, you often want sort of bigger quantities right. for preserving and, you know, you'll get sticker shock. If you go in, you know, the, the priciest stuff at the farmer's market, like the berries, you know, if you want to buy four quarts or, you know, right. something to preserve them, you're, you're all of a sudden you've just forked over a lot of money. A lot of money. And, but then on the flip side, there's some things at the farmer's market that are incredibly inexpensive, the sort of bargains. And it's wonderful to be able to preserve those. Something that pops right to mind is green tomatoes. Towards the end of the season, People are practically giving away green tomatoes. Literally, if your neighbor grows tomatoes and it's about to be a frost and they've still got tomatoes on the vine, they'll probably give you their green tomatoes. <laughs> and But green tomatoes are such a... They make an amazing pickle. They make a great relish or a salsa. Uh -huh. So one of the things I love to do is find those bargains mm -hmm. and preserve them. This is also great if you ever are like going to the supermarket and there's stuff that's on a crazy sale. And if you have this knowledge in your back pocket of how to preserve, it can be a real money saver in that way. And I think I, I talked about this at the beginning, but you know, a flat of berries, which is eight quarts will often be the same price as six quarts. So there are some savings there in bulk or Plus if you, you aren't buying that jam later. You've got oh, yeah. it. That's true. You've saved, yeah, you're not going to have to buy jam. You're definitely never going to buy jam again. <laughs> you're going to give it away as presents. <laughs> there you go. Lots of savings right there. Right there. It definitely can prevent waste, too. That's the other thing. If you do find yourself having 
overbought at the farmer's market because you kind of got seduced by all the amazing stuff that happened to be ripe that week. And, you know, and you bought it on Saturday and it's getting to be Thursday and you haven't used it all. And some of it's starting to look not as good. This is something I tell students when I'm teaching. I'm like, if you have some of these techniques in your back pocket, you're going to prevent yourself from throwing out that expensive food. So in that way, it can be a money saver. Mm -hmm. But you can also find yourself spending a ton of money. (laughs) (laughs) That's the other side. That's the the other side. side. So let's say this is, let's say I'm going to do this. I'm going to try. You should. And so what, what kind of recipes would I look at thinking, okay, simple is best way to start. So do you have some suggestions or hints of how to know if it's simple or is it, this is the technique, no matter what you put, what ingredients you put in, they're all the same in terms of complexity for recipes. Do you know what I mean? I do. I'll say this, the technique for actually preserving the, um, whatever you're making to make it be shelf stable, the the part where you, you know, put the jars in the boiling water and the magic happens. That's the same, no matter what you're making. If it's jam, if it's jelly, if it's Uh a pickle, if it's a chutney, that, that procedure is the same. There might be, there are little differences like how long a product might need to be in boiling water is going to depend on what you're making. But in general, the process is the same. That being said, pickles are pretty foolproof. Jam can go wrong on you in the sense that, you know, you undercook it and it's not jam, it's syrup. Mm. You overcook it and it's not jam, it's something that's, you know, rock hard. So jam, jam can go wrong. Pickles, it's really hard to mess up pickles. You know, you make a brine, you boil a brine on the stove, you pack your vegetables into the jars, you ladle the brine over it. Hard to get that wrong. So that maybe that's a good place for people to start and then gain some confidence and some skills so that they feel like they can move on. So that's a really great suggestion. Yeah, I do suggest. I, that's what I say to people. Start with pickles. That you can get, you'll, get, you'll get the technique under your belt, and it's the exact same technique if you want to start switching to jam. I think sometimes people like to start with jam because they want jam. Yeah. Because jam yeah. is delicious. Yeah, of course. <laughs> <laughs> and that's fine, too. And it looks pretty, too. It's Beautiful. All, yeah, all those but, great colors. So, yeah, I mean, you can do whatever you whatever you choose to do. And, you know, I should say, too, Beth, if the canning part, if the part, if you think, well, I'd love to make jam, but I only want to make a little bit, and I don't want to preserve it and have it be shelf-stable, that's fine, too. You can make what we call refrigerator jam. You can make a freezer jam. Hmm. Any of the recipes in the Jewish preserving book can be made just, if you want to just end up with jam, but you don't really, that part about preserving it and you know, opening it four months later, that's not important to you. Go ahead, follow the recipe, make the jam, and then pop it in the fridge. Oh, so you have, there's like a shortcut in a way. Sure. It's just about whether or not that's, you know, whether it's, you're like, I really want to make this peach jam now in August and open it in February. If you think, I want to make this peach jam now in August and eat it next week, (laughs) just make it. Okay. Well, this, all right. This is all great. So um, I know that you are, have uh, shared a recipe with me, which I'm going to in turn share with all the listeners and put it on the website. And the title of the recipe is Sweet and Sour Peach Ketchup. So do you have anything you want to say about this recipe? Tell me a little bit about it. Yeah, so you know we have gotten into the trap of thinking that ketchup means tomato. Yes, we have. But one thing I like to remind people is that tomatoes are a new world fruit. They are native to the Americas. So people were eating ketchup in Europe for centuries before they'd ever seen a tomato. And ketchup really is just a sweet and sour 
fruit or vegetable spread. So it's going to have that tang of the vinegar and it's going to have a little sweetness as well. And one of the things I talk about in the book is that sweet and sour, that combination Mm -hmm. is a classic Ashkenazi flavor profile. I think a lot of us are probably thinking right now like, oh yeah. Right. And part it had to do with Shabbat. If people were preparing foods ahead of time to be eaten on Shabbat, they knew they had to preserve them, so they might have added vinegar as a preservative. Right. But then it's really puckery and astringent, so then they add a sweetener to soften that vinegar, and that's how you sort of ended up with in that classic German-Jewish, Polish-Jewish cuisine, that sweet and sour flavor profile that I think a lot of us feel very like attached to. Um, so this recipe, it may sound really kind of crazy, a peach ketchup, but... It's actually a really old tradition, and it's a, it's delicious. It's wonderful on sweet potato fries. It's Ooh. great on a turkey burger. Uh, it's my brother-in-law's favorite. I send him some every, every holiday, <laughs> every Hanukkah. And it's always great to know like what you would pair it with. So your, your suggestions just right off the bat are, and I love sweet potato fries, so I'm just thinking, oh, maybe I have to try to make this. So you talked a little bit about canning and – or the water bath. Mm -hmm. And so that seems to be a constant. And then you gave us the kind of shortcut version. And would you say that that's it? That's how you do preserving? Or are there other methods that are either new or that people have tried? So is there other things we should think about or should we just stick with those? Well, I would say the other big one is fermenting, you know, which again, very old tradition, not just for the Jews for everybody, but for the Jews as well, of course, when we think about those classic deli kosher dill pickles, the sauerkraut on our Reuben sandwich, those are fermented uh, foods versus the canned foods. So there's a few recipes in the book for uh, fermented foods, those two namely. And I don't, I probably do more canning than fermenting, but I never let the summer go by without putting up some of these fermented kosher dill pickles because they are my family's like hands down favorite whoa i just i'm trying to picture what your kitchen looks like with all this stuff cooking and steaming and it must be amazing and the smells (laughs) must be incredible yeah well sometimes the fermenting smells can be a little (laughs) off-putting my kids i was i was I keep it kind of in the basement. I'm lucky to have a basement. I was fermenting some stuff in this closet that was off the off the kitchen. The kids were opening it up and going, it smells like feet. Why oh, does it no. smell like shoes in this closet? I said, it must be you. I don't, you know, I don't know why. Um, but the, it, my kitchen's very busy in the summer. I will say that. Yeah, it sounds like it. So Emily, could you explain a little bit about what this water process is? Because it's kind of the basis for all preserves. Absolutely. So what we're talking about is we call it water bath canning, and that's because it's we literally have a bath of boiling water that we submerge the jars in. And basically what happens is is you have you know canning jars, just your typical ball jars, and you will fill those jars with whatever you're making that day, be it a jam, a jelly, a pickle, a chutney, a relish. There is a limited universe of products that's safe to do by this method, and they are products that are high in acid. Mm -hmm. And I know that can be intimidating to people. Like, how am I supposed to know if it's high in acid? But this is where like good cookbooks and good recipes will guide you. Will guide you. They won't, there won't be any canning recipes, you know, that are not safe and tested. 
So it's these high acid foods that I was just mentioning. And you, you know, you fill up your jar. If you made a jam that day or if you were making pickles, you would fill it up and you'll have on the stove, you know, a bath of boiling water. And you put the filled jars with their lids back on them, not you need to leave a little bit of space at the top of the jar. Mm -hmm. And what happens is, is you put the jars in the boiling water and while they're in the water, the heat from the boiling water will penetrate to the center of the jar and kill any bacteria that's in there. Mm. The other thing that happens is, and remember how we left a little bit of room at the top. When things, if we can all cast our mind back to high school chemistry, when things are heated up, they expand. Right. So the product in the jar, your jam, whatever it is, expands. It pushes out any oxygen that's left in the jar. And then when you, after it's been in the jar for, excuse me, after it's been in the water for a certain amount of time, and it might, the time is going to depend because different things need different amounts of time for the water to penetrate Mm -hmm. all the way to the center and that requisite temperature. But after 10 minutes, maybe 15, maybe 20, you take the jar out. And when things cool down, they contract. And what happens then is the lid will seal and right. that it'll sort of do that thunk. Yeah. And what you have now is a product that has been heated up to kill any bacteria. There is no oxygen in it because oxygens are sort of our bad guy when it comes to any kind of preserving anything, mm-hmm. but especially food. And it has a vacuum seal. So no oxygen or anything right. else can get in. And that product is now shelf stable. You can keep it in your pantry, in your closet, in your basement and without refrigerating it and it will be safe and good for up to one year. And how do you know that the process was a success? That's a great question. If the jar sealed, it's a success. And there's different ways to know. You might hear it seal. You can certainly see it. There's a little button in the center of the lid that will depress. And if it's sealed correctly, you shouldn't be able to it shouldn't just come off. It should feel like it's sealed on there. Uh You should be able to pick it up by the lid and it's going to stay on. And if it's sealed, then it's safe. Hmm. Then you've done it right. I think that's the part that scares me. I think I'm, I'm not going to do all that technical stuff right. And then I'll do bad things with my food. Well, you know what? And if it doesn't, and if for some reason it didn't seal, then all you do is pop it in the fridge. The food is still good and delicious. Oh, it's right. just not shelf stable. I've had so many people say to me, oh, my jar didn't seal, so I threw it away. <gasps> no. <laughs> no, it's still delicious, good, beautiful food. It just needs to go in the refrigerator oh. like anything else. Makes sense. Yeah. All right. See, not so scary. No, not so scary. So I guess my last question would be, and you've, you've kind of answered this in a way, is so how does all this food preserving fit into your Jewish life, your Jewish food life with your family? It's, it's sort of the little things like, you know, when it's apple picking season, often like right around the high holidays, maybe even, you know, on that sort of lazy, like Rosh Hashanah afternoon, like we'll go apple picking and we'll pick a whole bunch of apples and I'll make applesauce. And then three months later on Hanukkah and I make the latkes and we open that homemade applesauce that I made three months ago and we put it on our latkes. And you know, there's not, I mean, of course, 
going out and buying yummy applesauce to put in your latkes is super special because the important thing is, is it's Hanukkah and you're having latkes. But we do really enjoy putting homemade applesauce on our latkes. Or, you know, whenever I make rugelach, I try to put my homemade jam in it. When it's Purim and I'm making khamantashen, I fill them with homemade jam. And it just is a little something extra um, a little extra love that mm -hmm. I... We, everyone who cooks Jewish food puts a ton of love into it. This is like my way of putting a little extra homemade love into it. Oh, that's a lovely way to end, end this <laughs> podcast this week. So thank you so much, Emily. This has really been so fun, and I've learned a ton. Well, thank you. What a, I'm so happy to talk to you and to reach your wonderful audience. Yeah, thank you. Um, thanks so much for listening to The Big Shmir today. Our recording and mix engineer is Steve Robinson. Our theme music is performed by Cavatina Duo for their CD entitled Sephardic Journey on the CD record label. Be sure to check out thebigschmear.com to find recipes shared by my guests. And if you like the podcast, don't forget to subscribe and to like us on Facebook. I'm Beth Schenker, the host of The Big Schmear. Thank you for listening and happy eating. <laughs>